to the George Sanders show. Uh, this week we have a very special episode. Um, earlier in the year, a few, few episodes back, um, in anticipation for my trip abroad, we did a uh, France-Germany show, and Sean's about to leave town for his uh, annual trip to the Vancouver International Film Festival. So we figured we'd do a similar thing and talk about uh, that most foreign of countries, Canada. Uh, isn't that right, Sean? Yeah, I don't know how you handle the the difference in culture. You know, going how long of a journey is it from your home to get to Vancouver? Uh, it's about four hours, but that's because I take the train. <laughs> wow, I mean that's pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, you know, do you how do you adjust to the time change uh, quickly? Uh, yes. Good. That's good. Um, we're so we're going to talk about uh, two kind of big. Canadian films this week, um, Videodrome from 1983, uh, director David Cronenberg's film, and Wavelength, um, Michael Snow's uh, experimental film from 1967. Uh, the greatest Canadian of all time, Rick Moranis, will be our person of the week. Um, we'll also pick our Cinema Central. Wait, the, the greatest can- Canadian movie star, greatest Canadian actor, or just greatest Canadian? Greatest Canadian. <laughs> Is there any dispute? I mean, <laughs> I don't know who you would even put up there in, you know, against him. Dave Thomas. Uh, ooh. You know, if those two ran for a president in the States, I, we'd have to, you know, obviously change some laws to make it happen. But I think the majority of Americans would, would be behind that and would uh, elect them. I would. You know, uh, so. you know. You know, I was thinking that maybe we should have done a, a Scotland episode this week because because of like the Scottish independence referendum. But then the, the Scots went and voted to not be independent, which seems like a totally Scottish thing to do. And <laughs> so in their, you know, unwillingness to be an independent country, we're 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 going with a, a country that did vote to secede from the United Kingdom. You know? That's right. The the more independent minded you know, stand on their own two feet, Canadians. <laughs> the tougher, the, the tougher country. Yeah, exactly. The more the grown braver. up Canadians, you know, the braver, right. the, the brave hearts of Canada. <laughs> God bless each and every one of them. Uh, so yeah, Rick Moranis, what, what of it? Uh, and we'll also pick our Cinema Central uh, Canadian film. 
which I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, we'll also get to some news, some what Mike's been watching, uh, and we'll do a little preview of your uh, Vancouver journey. Um, so yeah, we've got we got a ton to get to here. So why don't we uh, start this off with a clip from David Cronenberg's 1983 film Videodrome. Give him enough time just to see. Okay. Okay, then 10 years after World War IV. 25th and yes. 1. No, right. more. What? No. 2051, the they, future. They saw it no. already. Take Next century. I was the only one left on the planet after the Holocaust, eh? Hey, go. The Earth had been like devastated by nuclear war. Like Russia blew up the U.S. and U.S. blew up Russia, Statue of Liberty. Psst. Lucky for me, I'd been off-planet on vacation at the time of the war, eh? There wasn't much to do. All the bowling alleys had been wrecked. So as I spent most of my time looking for beer, one day I was out looking for a nice place to build a city for my children when I spotted a mutant in the Forbidden Zone. I landed my vehicle to pursue and destroy this genetic freak before he could warn other mutants in the underground caves. I was kind of like a one-man force, eh? Like Charlton Heston in Omega Man. Did you see it? It's beauty. Yeah! Fleshy-headed mutant, are you friendly? No way, eh? R- radiation has made me an enemy of civilization. Alpha Base, this is Bob McKenzie. I've spotted a fleshy-headed mutant in Sector 16B. Oh, take off, you holder! Okay, that was a clip from Videodrome. Um... Film stars James Woods as a TV executive who kind of runs this bottom of the barrel cable channel that just puts out the sleaziest, grossest, most pornographic stuff imaginable. Um, and is, he's constantly on the lookout for something even more depraved than what they've currently got. And he stumbles upon this thing called Videodrome um, and sets off this plot of him first trying to track down you know a way of getting that so he can show it on his uh on his channel and then it turns out to be more insidious than just uh this really gross snuff tv thing um and it infects his brain and he starts hallucinating and uh lots of creepy special effects ensue and debbie harry is there and it's very Cronenbergian. Is that a word? We say Spielbergian, right? Is Cronenbergian the the proper term for uh, the works of David Cronenberg? (laughs) Uh, I would say yes. Okay. It's Cronenbergian. Um, This is the first time either of us had seen Videodrome, which is kind of surprising because it is kind of a an essential work of uh, not just Cronenberg's career, but of, of a certain subset of cinema. I mean, it, it, you know, I've heard of video Videodrome for, you know, years, decades. Um, and there's a reason that I did not watch it until now. Um, and I wonder if there's a, a similar reason for you, Sean, is there a reason you hadn't got to Videodrome before? Yes. And it's, uh-huh. and it's the, the very boring reason that I don't really like icky things. And it's, it, <laughs> It has a reputation for being icky, and and it is. Uh, me too. That was that was the exact same reason that I uh, avoided Videodrome for a long time. Um, you know, I knew I knew the catchphrases. I knew you know, which doesn't help. You know, when when the movie's catchphrase is "Long live the new flesh," mm-hmm. um, you you kind of you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. Um, so I uh, I avoided it as well. But uh, I would I. 
I actually responded to this movie quite a bit, and I actually, and it is creepy. There's there's some gross out stuff uh, with James Woods' you know stomach opening up and him reaching inside and pulling out a gun um, or inserting a throbbing video cassette in there. Um, there's you know there's some really gross stuff, a throbbing television. Um, but it actually wasn't you know as usual with this kind of thing. It wasn't as bad as I was expecting um, in terms of creep, creepy factor. There, there are things that are creepier. I think John Carpenter's The Thing uh, is way more over the top with its gruesome effects and stuff. And that one made me, you know, turn my head a couple of times. But this one, I actually... I, yeah, I... I, 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 I thought... I thought about the thing a lot in in relation to this. They they came out um, right around the same time. I think it was like this was the year after the thing. And I, isn't yeah. isn't it the same special effects people in the Rick Baker? Yep, Rick Baker's. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely a very a similar aesthetic in terms of the the special effects and stuff. Um, but here. Yeah. Uh, then, but you know the the thing is also one of my least favorite John Carpenter films. Right. So uh, I would, yeah, I need to rewatch the thing because um, I saw it many, well, not many, many, many years ago, but um, it, the creepiness kind of kept me at a distance. And uh, I wonder if now that I'm, and it's, it, it, this is an interesting conversation to have in terms of particularly video drum, uh, if I've become more desensitized <laughs> um, mm. to the creepy, gross out stuff, um, since I've consumed a lot more cinema, since I, first saw the thing um which kind of plays into the the plot of videodrome here yeah Um, i guess we should we should talk about the kind of uh metaphysical tangle that that videodrome creates where it's a film that's like really gross and violent and and uh uh sexually dark about things that are gross and violent and sexually dark where the the villains are basically condemning the people who watch the kind of movie that Videodrome is. Although Videodrome is a movie about that. So <laughs> it, it occupies this like really weird place where it, where it's, uh, it is a, a really, you know, icky movie that kind of plays it both ways that, that on the one hand it, it kind of, you know, points out the arguments against watching icky movies, but then it puts those arguments in the mouths of the villains. But it's not like the hero comes to a good end from his, you know, uh, uh, watching of of dark content. Like, it, it basically does, you know, turn him into a, uh, a kind of brainwashed... Uh, homicidal maniac. Homicidal maniac. <laughs> so... Yes. So I mean, it's it this, conceptually, it's just going off in all kinds of different directions, and you can read it a lot of different ways. And on on the one hand, you could you could say that that that's incoherent, but it's also kind of the 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 message of the movie is this kind of incoherence in in the same way that that once he begins to hallucinate, we we really have no idea what is what is real and what is imagined. Like how much yeah, how much of that's... the the second half of the film is actually within James Woods's own mind? We have n- there is n- no way to tell. And that's actually what I really like about it is um, 
at first, you know, like you said, the second half, I, I started to question, okay, is this reality? When have we gotten back to, you know, normal life? But then it, it never gives you a chance to, to answer that question because a scene will start playing very straight and normal. And then he'll, you know, once again, reach into his stomach and pull out this gun or, or whatever. Um, and it never lets up after that point. And I think that's really smart. I think that's really a great way of going about it instead of trying to um, give us a, a very straight and narrow path with it. Um, and I also, um, I really think, I mean, I don't know too much about Cronenberg. I'm glad he's not our person of the week so that we can kind of delve into what we both know about him here now in this discussion. Um, I've seen I've seen a few of his movies. Um, I haven't seen Scanners, and I haven't seen uh, a lot of the newer stuff. I haven't seen... Um, actually, I don't think I've seen anything he's done, um, you know, 2000 or, or later. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know too much about the guy, but I feel like he's really wrestling um, with himself in this movie, you know, where he's, he's questioning his... Um, you know, desire to, to show these gross things and, and uh, whether that makes him a bad person or if, you know, I think he, especially in the beginning, I felt like it was really him kind of wrestling with his stature and, and what he was known for, even though this is a very early film for him. Um, you know, Scanners was before this, but, um, you know, yeah, this is at, 30, at, at, the, at this point, though, he, he was, he was, uh, you know, well known in certain circles as a, a horror filmmaker. With, with right. scanners and with shivers, I think. Um, and I, I think he'd also worked in, in Canadian television in a, a kind of UHF station, not, not unlike the one that, uh, that James Woods works at on here. Uh, that was apparently famous for showing uh, softcore pornography late at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I had, I've, uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of Cronenberg. Uh, I've seen The Fly, and other than that, just uh, the more recent ones. I think actually the uh, the two with Viggo Mortensen, and then uh, I guess three with Viggo Mortensen: uh, Dangerous Method, History of Violence, and Eastern Promises. Um, but so uh, you, haven't, you haven't seen like uh, Crash or no? I've seen Crash and Naked Lunch. And, yeah, haven't uh, seen those or Dead Ringers or or Madam Butterfly. Or scanners, or yeah, any of that. You know, I I I tend to stay away from him because because he's got a <laughs> reputation as icky, and I'm not a, I'm not a fan. Of, it makes me feel gross. But okay, well, let me ask you then. So, did this movie change your perspective on on David Cronenberg? Did it did it give you a deeper appreciation for his stuff, or did it reinforce? Okay, this is not for me. Um, no, do you, it, do you it, think it basically confirmed what what I already thought, which is which is that it's really good, it's really smart, it's really well done, but it's not really the kind of thing that I will go out of way out of my way to watch. It's just not just not a horror guy. But but I I I liked this movie, even though it was creepy. <laughs> um, if that, if that makes me. sense, so that's that's like where you get in the problem with like assigning like a star rating to a movie on on Letterboxd. It's like I I know that this is a great movie. It is a great movie. Um, it is icky though, and I don't really like icky movies. 
but I'm not, I, but I'm going to give it the the rating that it deserves for being a, a great movie. I think you should give it the rating that you respond to. Like I think that if 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 you have like a serious revulsion to something, um, you know, why no, give I, it I didn't, five I didn't, stars? I didn't feel that I mean, way. Like I, I feel a serious revulsion to like American Hustle. Um. <laughs> yeah, that that made my stomach turn. <laughs> Yeah. This did not, this is not at all. This is um, this is this is more a matter of like I, I I wouldn't like go and seek this out to have a good time. Uh, I I never did that when I was a kid. Like a, a a lot of a lot of kids I know my generation would go and see like video drama. It was uh it was like a constant on in video store shelves and uh you know that's another interesting aspect of the movie we can maybe talk about later like the VHS era. But there were there were kids uh who would rent like the Faces of Death movies. Have you ever heard of those? I don't think so. They they were really popular in like junior high when I was in junior high, and uh, it was like they were this, really popular in Spokane. Yeah, it was it was like the, it was Spokane. this nineteen seventy eight movie that just basically had a bunch of footage of of death scenes, like animals getting killed, uh, most of which were real, and some actual fake deaths, and then some more like famous documentary deaths, like stuff from Vietnam and stuff, and and kids would watch it, and it'd be like people dying all the time. And yeah. and that never appealed to me. Yeah, no, no I mean, I, I and I think, and you know, I think was... that's the kind of thing that the video drama is is directly addressing that kind of movie and that kind of culture. Yeah, I don't think video drama is that kind of movie, though. No, it, no, I, it's not. And I actually, um, and it may have been that I was expecting something different, or I mean, I got I, it fulfilled my expectations, but I actually. In a weird way, I, I don't think this movie went far enough. <laughs> um, mm. Like, I actually think of the two films we're discussing this week, uh, I think Wavelength is the scarier movie. Um, Interesting. Uh, Videodrome uh, has, uh, you know, it has those elements and stuff, but I was expecting a point where I would just be, like, repulsed or something. Not that uh, I'm looking for that, but um, I actually responded to this movie and 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 was coasting with it and, and um i just i think the my one criticism of this movie was i i don't think it was extreme enough and i don't know if mm. in 1983 this movie was more effective and and we've just kind of gotten we've kind of assimilated a lot of these um gross elements or, or whatever or i'm just becoming more and more depraved as i get older i don't i don't quite know um regarding the movies that you were just talking about uh, faces of death or whatever um i remember being in uh, a room where someone had a vhs of that someone had made like a compilation of you know that politician that committed suicide on camera and stuff like that and like really gross scatological things mm-hmm. um that that that's where i draw the line i don't like that stuff at all um and that is that to me, I don't get at all. Um, but anyway, but uh, uh, yeah, like the the most the most disturbing image in in Videodrome to me was uh, when he uh, is uh, piercing Deborah Harry's ears <laughs> with that yeah. big long needle. That made yeah. me really uncomfortable. Like the the stomach thing was was so much, you know, it was it was makeup. It was like it was like a really cool special effect. Uh, that didn't that didn't turn my stomach, but the right, right. the ear piercing that was uncomfortable. Uh, Videodrome, I, I, it, it's it's much more uncomfortable uh, 
intellectually than it is viscerally to me just the the kind of argument that it sets up and and the way it 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 loops back on itself and this kind of inability to tell the difference between between reality and hallucination and 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 uh and image um yeah i i i found that really really disturbing yeah i i you know i think this i think this movie would probably affect me more if I saw it in a theater, like in a dark theater. Um, although I don't know, because I mean, it's I mean, part of the joy is is the home video aspect of the film too. Um, maybe yeah, if I, I didn't mean, watch I think, it in the middle think, of the afternoon. Yeah, I think I think the ideal way to to see it is is like on a a, a twenty inch TV on a VHS tape, right? Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's true. Um, that you've that you've like rented from the video store like without your mom knowing, and you can't tell what like whether the static is from like the film itself, like Cronenberg like put it in there, or if it's like from your VHS player or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's pretty cool. And you know the criterion of this, uh, if I remember correctly, the cover is made to look like a video cassette, you know, and it's yeah. like hand scrawled, you know. Um, which is really cool. Um, and like you said, we should talk about maybe this culture that is, you know, this is kind of a time capsule now um, for kind of for that UHF era. Um, by the way, great double feature with Weird Al Yankovic's uh, UHF. I think this would really pack people in to a, to a cinema. Yeah, I think do, they, do they, they have a lot in common thematically, I think. They've got, yeah, they both the, star pop singers. Yeah, the way we... Uh, yeah. We interact with media and, and television. Yeah, we consume stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, sudden bursts of violence, you know. Um, UHF is a surprisingly violent movie. If, I don't know yeah. if you remember that. Oh, but yeah. uh, there's some Conan the Librarian slicing that guy in Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, anyway, but anyway, I could talk about UHF for a long time. By the <laughs> way, uh, UHF uh, Blu-ray, Shot Factory, uh, November 11th, coming out, 25th anniversary. Uh, get in line now for that. It's going to be exciting. What better uh, way to but, celebrate uh, Veterans Day? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so the culture that this movie depicts um, is kind of disappearing or has disappeared um where it that kind of video quality um that you're gonna get uh, the uhf kind of world um where there are these kind of like outposts i mean you you know nowadays you've got five thousand channels but they're it you know they're more homogenized now every the production values are are better across the board you're not going to get these weird i remember seeing um i came to seattle in 98 or something uh, around that time no it was nine. Yeah, because everybody was playing uh, Hello Nasty because that had just come out. But um, and we turned this to the Seattle channel, and there was some freaky stuff on this. I think it was the Seattle channel, or, you know, some public access channel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was some weird stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, um, like just weird channels that you can find on TV. It's just all kind of, uh, uh, supposedly uh, the the germ of the story was was that when Cronenberg was a kid, at late at night, he would pick up channels from buffalo growing up in in uh, toronto i think and he was always uh, afraid that he would see something that he wasn't supposed to see mm-hmm. on like a buffalo uhf channel yeah uh, and i don't know how much you get i mean i guess now, nowadays you know there's that exposure but it's on the internet now um right it's it's at, at this it's it's less it's less intimate and it's more freely available 
Right. Because like when you're when you're on like a, a broadcast TV station, you you feel like you're the only one watching the thing because it's just it's your TV in, in in your house and it's in your room and you're the only one there and the whole room is blue because that's the light that comes off of the TV. But when you're on the internet, everybody else is is there too. So it it's always. You, you never find somewhere on the internet that nobody else has heard of because there's always been other people there. Well, that and also, sense. you know, with, yeah, um, but also with a TV thing, you're a kind of more captive audience because you, um, with the internet, you can flip between a bunch of different things and, and you're, you can kind of curate what you're doing more. But if you're, if you're stuck with 13 channels and it's two in the morning and, and you know that's all that's all you've got and so it's either you've got you know jay leno or you've got some weird tweaker dude talking about conspiracy theories you know right. <laughs> or something um yeah which, and, which is way more intense and and even more than that is the the kind of, is the physicality of the media of of vhs like we we've talked a lot about video stores and and uh, in the in the show in the past, but but even more than just having an actual you know physical media of the thing that you're going to watch and carrying it in your hands and uh, the VHS tapes were were big and and they were surprisingly light, but you know they had this this real tactile quality. You stick it in the VHS player and it makes like these weird noises and you have to adjust the tracking and there's all that kind of stuff that that you don't have with with digital where it's just it's just a signal it's it's out there. And the the idea with with Videodrome that 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 the guy could could grow an an orifice in his body where the the image gets inserted through a medium wouldn't isn't possible anymore. Like the, there's no physical transformation that would get the Videodrome signal into a person nowadays. It would just like be beamed through the air into their brain, which is a different right. kind of scary. Than the kind of uh, kind of body horror thing that that Cronenberg is talking about the way, the physical transformations that 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 media have on on human beings. Right. Yeah. There's. This is a. I find this one more frightening. I, I, yeah. I guess. It's, it's well, much I, more. I think. Yeah. Um, and maybe it maybe it shouldn't be because like the the ephemerality the invisibility of of digital of internet of wireless signals uh should make it more terrifying but but there's it's less icky i guess yeah it's yeah and yeah it, this makes for much better cinema <laughs> i'll give you that much instead of having someone just you know like a wavelength you know uh, hey wavelength bump, mm -hmm. beaming into their head um which which brings up like my 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 plot <laughs> complaint about video drum which is okay. uh, uh supposedly the video drum signal uh, triggers, uh, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Videodrome, uh, triggers, uh, it causes a brain tumor, which causes all of these hallucinations. Uh, but a VHS tape doesn't send a wavelength, right? In the, in, yeah. that, would, that would make sense if it was like a wireless signal, because then it's like a wavelength going into your brain. But... You know, uh, you you can't have that encoded on a VHS tape. In uh, in Infinite Jest, uh, uh, David Foster Wallace takes like a, a similar presence uh, uh, premise, like a, a videotape that that causes like mass chaos, and and 
with that, it's, it's, uh, that the, the image that you see is so beautiful that you can't stop watching it. So you like die of, of pleasure because you just sit right. there watching it over and over again. Right. Uh, and that's, that's like a different way of going about a, a similar thing, kind of a, a viral video, literally. Right. So I, well, I, didn't, like the, I didn't quite, I don't know that that quite makes sense how that works. Yeah. If you start to pick it apart like that, I, yeah. I, I guess when I was, you know, when I was, watching the movie, I kind of thought that it was more of like um, a combination, like a subliminal message being beamed, you know, through those things that kind of like, you know, reconfigures your brain with, you know, I don't know if, and, and once again, it's like the, the processing of the image that you see alters your, your brain chemistry. I, I can right. do it. I mean, this is not like a, the, the whole thing has the logic of a nightmare. Obviously it, it doesn't need right. to, to make sense. The, the science, you don't need it. Yeah. You don't need science to back it up no. or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all know that the scariest of all of these concepts, you know, the David Foster Wallace one, the video drum one, the scariest is the Monty Python one where they write the funniest joke of all time Right, There's um, a, a, a to take down the Nazis. Um, <laughs> um, uh, there, there was another one that I thought of that had the, the similar presence, but uh, of course now I've forgotten it. So, was it, it UHF? It was not UHF. <laughs> um, oh, oh, uh, uh, the ring. Oh, right, of yeah. course. With the uh, the ghost that comes out of the the video. I haven't uh, I haven't seen the ring it? or or the original. Yeah, I haven't seen him either. Um, Gore Verbinski, right? He did the uh, the American. Yeah, Gore Verbinski did the the remake. Yeah. I haven't seen those. Uh, I, I have though read half of of. Jean Baudrillard's Simulacular and Simulation. Uh, <laughs> so I think I'm on pretty clear footing under understanding the, the philosophical implications of Videodrome. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got your bona fides. I'm glad that <laughs> you put that out there for the people. Yeah. So one of, one of the things that, that actually surprised me about this film, although it really shouldn't have, uh, having seen his later films, is... That uh, while there will be, you know, very striking images in in Videodrome, uh, the manner in which Cronenberg films films them is not uh, particularly, you know, crazy or wild. He doesn't have crazy, you know, shadows or off kilter camera angles. There aren't like really shocking editing uh, tricks or anything like that. He films it very flatly, very matter of factly. The mm-hmm. and that that kind of you know intentional mundanity in his visual style uh, makes the the surreality of the images I think work a lot more, and I think that's something oh, yeah. that, that Cronenberg understands and and that uh, uh, it kind of makes him him very similar to to John Carpenter who who as well uses a more you know classical visual style than the kind of uh, directors that that follow in their wake and and try to do more disturbing stuff with the camera and right like yeah yeah dragging the camera you know like uh, yeah all those all those tricks and all the yeah um i it's funny because there's one there's one moment in this movie that and it's and it's it's still shot pretty flat but there's one moment that works as like a jump scare for me in 
this and it's the first time the videotape uh kind of pulsates the first time james woods is holding it sure. um and it's because of the editing because uh cronenberg cuts to it for like half a second and you see it pulse and then it cuts to something you know uh and so so your brain doesn't even have a chance to really register it before it happens. Um, but yeah, his the, that's what helps make this uh, question of what's a hallucination and what's reality um, so effective is that the beginning of the film looks exactly like the end of the film, even though <laughs> the end of the film, he's on a, on a boat, you know, talking to a, a pulsating TV uh, um, and watching himself, you know, spoiler, kill himself. <laughs> yeah, like uh, the, 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 you know, the disturbing, you know, filmmaking style from Cronenberg come, comes in, in the editing. Like his, his editing is slightly off rhythm from, you know, typical Hollywood editing. Like it, there's, there's always something about his films that doesn't quite feel right and you can't really put your finger on it. Uh, and that, and that, and that I think comes from, from the editing and not from, you know, getting in your face with like, with point of view shots or, you know, weird film stocks or anything like that. Sure. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, you know, Carpenter is different. He uses a cinemascope. He, everything's, you know, fairly carefully framed. He has point of view shots, but, but still it's a more classical style than, than the inheritors of the Carpenter Cronenberg tradition. I think. Yeah. These flashy upstart kids. Yeah. The <laughs> and their whiz bang gimcracks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well speaking um, speaking of uh the future. <laughs> there's, there's... Wow. That wow. <laughs> that was that was pretty good, Sean. I gotta give you a hand for that one. That was pretty nice. <laughs> Uh, for those of you that don't know what Sean just did, uh, he's setting up our transition here. Uh, we are listening to uh, one of Canada's greats, uh, one of humankind's greats, really, uh, Leonard Cohen this week. Um, and this is the song from the album The Future called The Future.
right, thanks, Lenny. Uh, so obviously, we mentioned at the top of the show what the heck we're doing this show for, and you were leaving for Vancouver, and you're going to be gone for what eight days? Eight days. Very, eight days. Very how many excited. Movies, how many movies do you plan on watching over the course of the eight days? Uh, probably over thirty. I'm not yeah. sure. I I I did a like a preliminary run through the schedule, kind of marking down everything, and I and I had thirty seven. Uh, potential movies, but I, I am certain I will not get to that many. Uh, usually, I get a, a cold after about four days, and then that uh, that might knock out a few shows, and uh, I'll probably just be really tired and hungry. Yeah, that I, I you know have... it happens when you leave the country. You know, you go to foreign lands, you get sick. It, you know. There's nothing you can do about well, it. Well, it happens when you go to film festivals because you're watching like four or five movies a That's day true. with like dozens of other people and you're not eating enough. And if if you're like me, you're not eating enough and you're drinking way too much coffee. And yeah, it's uh it's a disaster for the immune system. I think I've gotten I think I've gotten a cold at every film festival I've ever been to. Uh you think you would learn at some point to like kind of like I got some go, I got some a regimen. I got some vitamin C this year, though. I'm gonna I'm gonna eat a lot of vitamin C. All right. I also I also have a plan. I'm gonna I'm gonna get uh, uh, some bread and some peanut butter, and I'm going to eat more. Good idea. Make my own peanut butter sandwiches (laughs) and just take them to movies with me instead of uh, bags of Skittles. That'll that'll probably help. (laughs) Oh man, I I one of these years I just want to go alongside and watch you. (laughs) <laughs> as you interact with the world because you're cooped i mean you know 51 weeks out of the year you you have very little contact with the outside world i mean you know yeah. you you live in your little bubble and then sean you know you could write like a children's book about it you know sean goes off <laughs> to explore the the wide world you know out there and with armed with only a bag of skittles and some vitamin c <laughs> What kind of adventure? At, will at, get at first, this? it's great. I'm out of the house. I don't have any kids. I can I can do whatever I want. And and after a couple of days, I'm like, oh, I miss my kids. Oh. 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 But well, it, 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 it's hard. It's hard talking to grownups <laughs> instead yeah. of like a three year old. Yeah, it's it, it's. You tough. know what I've learned though. Yeah. You know what I've learned. I've you know I've dealt with a lot more kids uh, in the last couple of years. I just talk to them the same, like yeah. you know. I, I I talk to the adult. It's not like I talk uh, like an adult to the kids. I talk to the adults like I talk to the kids. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I talk to the adults like they're four. You know, yeah, and it seems exactly. to work just fine. So you know, yeah. What? No problem. Anyway, so let's do a brief rundown of uh, like what's like your the the films you're most excited about um, that are playing at, at Vancouver. Uh well uh obviously number one most excited would be uh, uh Don't Go Breaking My Heart two the Johnny Toe movie but that's not playing that's not, there it's not playing there I know it's I'm so upset <laughs> I'm so well, upset so so uh, the the backup would be the the new Hong Sang Soo film of course uh, uh Hill of that's Freedom that's a short one isn't it. Isn't it like like yeah? It's like, like it's like seventy minutes long or something, and it's it's at like a really awkward time. It's like five fifteen, so it basically screws up the whole schedule because it's only playing once while I'm there. It plays the night before I get there, 
and I was only playing once at at, at five fifteen, so it's just it's a disaster. Uh, other than that, probably the the Godard film. Uh, adieu, uh, adieu, oh, Lang- adios, cinema. <laughs> <sighs> The great Spanish director Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> the, the the Jean-Luc Godard film uh, Adieu à Langage, uh, the uh, uh, the Frederick Wiseman film. I'm really excited for. I've been watching a lot of Wiseman films lately. So so National Gallery. I really want to see. Um, yeah, I, you know, I might go see The Midnight After again. It was my favorite movie at, at uh, the Seattle Film Festival this year, and it's playing in Vancouver. And I, I, I seriously, I might go and watch it again. Well, you might not get a chance for another chance for a while. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what do, what are you what are you going to do while I'm in Vancouver? <laughs> what, gonna... what are you most excited to watch? <laughs> I'm excited to not talk to you for eight fucking days. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be looking forward to watching uh, some baseball. It's getting getting pretty crazy out there. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I we'll get to. Well, I actually we will we will talk about what I plan on watching when we get to what's Mike been watching. So oh, uh, we'll do okay. that. Get to it. Um, well, speaking of cinema uh, events and what have you, um, and Seattle International Film Festival. Uh, there's some news in Seattle. Uh, I think was it episode two, or it was one of the first episodes of this show. Uh, one of our news bits was that uh, Landmarks Egyptian Theater um, in Seattle was closing. Uh, they, as as Landmark has been doing for the last few years in Seattle, they are, you know, closing the the buildings that they don't, you know, um, own the property of basically. And that was the Egyptian. It was a single screen, a big movie theaters. I saw many great films there. You saw some great films there. Um, but the good news is it, it's been closed for a year, but uh, Seattle International Film Festival, SIF, has uh, taken on a new lease there, and they are starting up again in October, right? It's like the beginning of October? Uh, yeah, it's the. It's actually the week that I'm gone. They are... They're, they're running like a, a week of... Uh, of what are supposedly the biggest hits in the history of the Egyptian, right? So they're playing. Uh, they're playing Enter the Dragon. So they're doing. Yeah, they're yeah. doing that. It's a weird. It's a weird schedule. It's like that and Amelie. And, oh, they're uh, they're they're playing uh, my neighbor Totoro, which would be perfect. My my daughter just turned three; she's totally ready to go see a movie. Uh, but there's like nothing playing in the theater that I would want to to take her to. I would totally take her to Totoro, and they're playing it the day before I get back, so uh, I can't do it. So and they are playing it in English. So I know yeah. you're never gonna let your daughter watch the original. I mean, never let your daughter watch the English language version of My Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> no, no, I would. I, I make an <laughs> I make an exception kidding. for the dubbing for the, for the children that can't read. But once she's like seven, eight years old, no more dubbing. It's over. Yeah, <laughs> it's over. Sink, sink or swim. Enjoy it while you can. If you can't That's read right. by then, you're you're out of luck. Learn Japanese. That's right. That's right. Um, so that's pretty exciting, though. I mean, especially, you know, I live, uh, the, the Egyptian is probably the closest theater that I would uh, go to see a movie at. Um, I guess there are a few downtown, but those are multiplexes that don't usually have what I want to see. So hopefully they do some good programming over there and I can get out to the Egyptian again. Because um, I, you know, we, oh, the first, the first movie we ever talked about on this show. 
drug war we saw at the Egyptian together. So it was the last movie we saw at the Egyptian. In fact, there you go. So it comes full circle. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I hope that it it works out for them. Yeah. So speaking of, of movies that you've watched, what have you been watching? (laughs) (laughs) You're killing it this week, Sean. Mm -hmm. You're killing it. Uh, so I recently finished Mark Harris's new book, uh, Five Came Back, which is a history of Hollywood and uh, the Second World War, um, particularly five uh, directors, uh, Frank Capra, John Ford, John Huston, George Stevens, and William Wyler, and uh, their kind of uh, tenure with the uh, military during World War II. Um, and it was a great book. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I... The book talks about the the propaganda films that they were making. You know, the um, uh, I just totally blanked on the name. Oh, the Why We Fight, uh, Frank Capra stuff, which I've seen a few of those before, um, but I hadn't seen the films that the move that the book uh, really kind of focuses in on, and and that includes um, John Ford's The Battle of Midway and uh, uh, John Huston's report from Alu- How do you say it? Aleutians? Yeah. Aleutians? Yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, cut, edit. The, Racist. Uh, John, <laughs> uh, and John Houston's uh, report from Aleutians, uh, as well as the Memphis Bell, um, all of which were shorts, you know, 20 to 40 minutes that ran in cinemas uh, to, you know, get people um, hyped about the war, uh, so to speak, but also give them, you know, a sense of what, what life was like, um, for soldiers and, you know, other military people, um, during the war. And, um, and so the, you know, it's interesting to watch these movies because, you know, they don't have a director credit. None of them do on these films. Um, but they are so this, I mean, this, the author theory, (laughs) this is the greatest example of, of showing that the author theory is, absolutely um correct that you can you can ascribe a director to these movies because the battle of midway is a john ford movie like through and through you could you could totally pinpoint it um same with the memphis bell and william wyler um that was probably my favorite of the of those three that i've seen so far um but in addition to that i've 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 watched um and i had never heard of these before and maybe i was just out of the out of the loop or something um but i did not know that Capra commissioned a series of um, cartoons, um, and Theodore Geisel, Theodore Geisel, Theodore Geisel, 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 and Theodore Geisel, uh, Doctor Seuss, as we know him, uh, uh, collaborated with Chuck Jones and the Warner Brothers guys um, on these cartoons, starring a character named Snafu. Um, and basically Snafu gets into, you know, all kinds of trouble doing the wrong thing as a, as a soldier. Um, and it's, you know, they're hilarious and they're also supposed to show you, uh, you know, soldiers what not to do. Um, and they were originally just meant to be shown to soldiers, um, entering the army. Um, of course, obviously like, now like they're a, out. like a don't do what Donnie don't does kind of thing. Exactly. Um, and they're interesting because they were made for, you know, the military. Um, so they're public domain. You can see them on YouTube. Um, they weren't meant for theatrical release. So they're a lot more ribald and kind of risque. Um, you know, the, the, the very first introduction, you know, explains what snafu means and it gets really close to saying situation normal, all fucked up, but it does say it does, you know, equivocate and go to fouled, but, um, there's, 
there are naked women. Um, there, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, racy for the forties. Um, the best one I've seen so far is obviously it's going to be a Chuck Jones one called Spies, um, just showing you, you know, what will happen if you, you know, walk into town on your leave and you get totally drunk and start speaking uh, about all of your plans to, uh, you know, hot Nazi spies. So. Uh, <laughs> So they're they're fun, you know. Uh, you know the one, the one tricky part is obviously there are racist caricatures galore in there, particularly uh, towards the Japanese, um, and it's it's pretty rough uh, to say the least. Um, but obviously, if you go into it with you know your historical glasses on, uh, I think they're well worth watching. So. All that stuff is on YouTube, you know, the Memphis Bell and uh, Midway, all that stuff is, you know, public domain since it was made for um, the Army. So I look forward to seeing the others that Houston and Weiler uh, made, um, as well as the films that they made right after the war, um, or in John Ford's case, uh, with They Were Expendable, um, right near the end of the war. Um, I haven't seen those films, and I'm really looking forward to it. And yeah. Yeah, of of those propaganda films, I think Battle Battle of Midway is the only one that I've seen, and and it's really great. But I I love those those post war films and the the three big ones that the directors that those guys made right at, as the war ended, uh, Best Years of Our Lives, They Were Expendable, and It's a Wonderful Life are are three of the best movies of of the nineteen forties. They're all all three favorites of mine. So I'm yeah, I'm excited for you to watch them. I assume you've seen It's a Wonderful Life before. I've but. seen It's a Wonderful Life. I have yeah. seen that. Um the 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 person that surprised me the most in the in the book um was George Stevens, who I know from uh Swing Time, obviously, and you know, he did all these romantic comedies and stuff. But his story in World War Two, because he he documented uh you know, the, 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 uh, the Holocaust. I mean, yeah. he, he was, you know, he saw the first concentration camp stuff and he was filming it himself and it destroyed him as a human being. I mean, he just came back a different person, as they say. Um, not that the other guys didn't, you know, William Wyler came back deaf for crying out loud, but sure. um, George Stevens, story is just absolutely insane in this, in this book. So how, um, how did you like the book? I, I haven't, I haven't read that yet. I, I, I really liked, uh, Mark Harris's previous book, though, I like this a lot. I haven't, I, I haven't read uh, those pictures of out of revolution, right? Yeah, uh, about the uh, 1967 best picture contenders and kind of the, yeah. the the crossroads of the new Hollywood and old Hollywood. Yeah, I I, I really want to read that now. I I ate this. Um, you know, this is you know catnip to me, so to speak. I mean, I'm not a big, uh, world war two history buff or anything like that, but, um, but using these guys, using these, you know, directors, um, as like an inroads to that, um, was really great. And there are some great anecdotes, you know, William Wyler wanted to go back to his hometown and obviously it was behind enemy lines or something. And he ends up like riding in a Jeep with Ernest Hemingway's brother. Who's like, sure, I'll take you like through this like battle scarred, you know, when, when nobody else will take them there. There are all these great little anecdotes like that. And the personalities, I mean, Harris really captures the, I mean, his portrait of John Ford is, is great. You know, it's, he's larger than life. He's, you know, crotchety, but also, you know, he's got this kind of, it's kind of a shell to hide his insecurities and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, William Wyler comes off the coolest because, uh, 
that guy's pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he also, you know, I like Capra, you know, uh, but I don't think Mark Harris likes Capra very much. Uh, maybe that's just because Capra spent the war behind a desk uh, and didn't actually, you know, go abroad. But uh, yeah, he's you know. a he's a complex figure. Yes. Um, but anyway, that's 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 what I've been watching and that's what I've been reading. Um, but let's talk about Canada again. Let's go back to the, the theme of this show here um, and our Cinema Central Canadian film. Um, there are a lot of great Canadian directors and, and, you know, there's we've talked about a few of them on the show before. You know, we've uh, briefly talked about Guy Madden and people like that. Um, was there... Was your pick specifically Canadian? Was it something that you wanted really to, to encompass what it's like to be Canadian? Or was it just, I'm going to pick a great movie that just happens to be Canadian? I'm going to pick a great movie that just happens to be Canadian. Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, it's not even really Canadian. Uh, it's kind of going off your 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 propaganda films. And that's uh, Paul and Pressburger's The 49th Parallel. Which was a, a a film that they made. They were uh, like like these other guys. They were making uh, propaganda films. They were more commercially oriented, but they were still propaganda films. World War Two, and they were uh, tasked with making this this film about about Canada and getting Canada, you know, all psyched to to fight Nazis. So they they came up with a story where a German submarine is like uh, uh, like has to. Uh, uh, crash in in Hudson's Bay or something, and the squad of Germans has to like make their way across Canada, enlisting German Canadians in the fight. And every every place they go, they meet a stereotypical subset of of 1940s Canadians, and they all end up basically rejecting the Nazis and joining the fight. And then at the end, uh, Americans join in too, and it's like this big you know pan North American. Nazis suck kind of thing and <laughs> it's 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 a lot more fun than that kind of movie should be and it's a it's a Powell and Pressburger movie which means that it has you know every every moment of watching it is is pleasurable but it's also very serious and it's it's very smart and it's got Laurence Olivier doing the most hilariously ridiculous French Canadian accent you have ever heard <laughs> Yeah, I, that's a Paul and Pressburger film that I have not seen, um, and I I would like to rectify that. Um, that duo may appear later in the show, mm. uh, so I'll, I'll leave the, that tantalizing. They, they usually out there do. You. They're like the the second most mentioned filmmakers <laughs> on the George Sanders show. I know, I know, they really are. Um, every time we mention Paul and Pressburger, uh, everybody out there should uh, shoot up just a little bit of heroin. That's the that's the new. <laughs> drinking game for right the, yeah for uh george sanders show <laughs> so what is your and essential... then if we mention johnny toe then you drink so yeah. if we mention johnny toe and powell and pressburger uh you know have nine one one pretty much dialed um, <laughs> on your phone but you know <laughs> during that episode uh my cinema central canadian film kind of stretches the essential part of this um it's a very flawed film uh, but I really enjoy it. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't know if I, how I would respond to it nowadays. Um, but I watched it a lot in high school. And uh, it's, it holds a special place in my heart. And I really would like to, you know, shine a spotlight on it. And the film is uh, Brain Candy. 
from 1996, mm. the uh, Kids in the Hall film. Um, it's not as good as the best Kids in the Hall sketch stuff from TV. Um, you know, there were a lot of problems with making the film. Um, Dave Foley was, you know, had one foot out the door um, to do, I think he was doing news, news radio at the time and stuff. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a collective uh creation like the the show had been in its in its best years um but it's the five kids in the hall guys and it's you know you put them together and it's going to be a lot of fun and the film is it, it uses a very broad plot of uh, a pharmaceutical company creating a pill that makes everybody happy and it actually ties in with what we were talking about earlier um the the side effects of something like that um <laughs> where uh like you said with david foster wallace it 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 sounds good in theory but it doesn't end up so well um but then it's it's really an excuse to have you know the kids in the hall dress and drag and uh you know play like 20 different characters and um there's some really great show-stopping moments uh the one that i think of most frequently is scott thompson's uh very gay musical number <laughs> which is is really fun and uh you know i love the kids in the hall are, are you a kids in the hall fan sean i i am i i i too love the kids in the hall uh i saw brain candy on video when i was in college uh i don't really remember much about it yeah it's one i want to revisit uh, you know it was it was it literally was the first thing that popped in my mind when we talked about picking a film for uh, Canadian Essential. And I was like, man, I haven't seen Brain Candy in ages, but uh, I hope it holds up. I, I really think that it probably does more than it doesn't. So um, if you haven't, if you don't know the kids in the hall, you know, they've been off the air for a long time. So I don't know if people are talking about kids in the hall much anymore or not, but um, you should check out their stuff. Cause there's some really, really good stuff out there. Um, Tying in with the Kids in the Hall, another kind of Canadian comedy show, uh, very influential, uh, was SCTV. Uh, that was on, you know, a decade before Kids in the Hall, um, and actually featured a lot of people from Chicago as well, from Second City. Um, one of the people involved with that was Rick Moranis, and he is our uh, person of the week this week because, as we mentioned at the top of the show, he's probably the greatest Canadian of all time. Um, probably. Probably. I haven't met every single Canadian. But... And, and really, we could probably only name like three Canadians. but <laughs> Right. Uh, Rick Moranis is awesome. Uh, I'm just going to come out and say it. He's, uh, he's such a great personality. He's great in everything he's in. Even in something, you know, I was in, uh, when I was in Germany, uh, I was, you know, eating cereal one morning or something and I turned on the TV and of course in Germany, everything, all TV shows, every station is in German, even though everybody there speaks English, uh, it it's, seems like predominantly, it's but really, it's really rude of them. I think it's very rude of them. You know what I mean? Anyway, honey, I shrunk the kids was on hmm. and it was dubbed, you know, but, uh, I watched, you know, five, 10 minutes of it and Rick Moranis He's still he's great in stuff like that that I think probably is not as good as I, I thought it was when I saw it when I was a kid. But um, but Rick Moranis has done a number of essential roles, uh, Ghostbusters, uh, you know, all of his stuff with uh, the the earlier comedy stuff. I Space, I really balls. Like Spaceballs. Yeah, I just rewatched Spaceballs, and while I'm not a fan of that film, uh, I really like him in it. 
he's 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 really great and um what's interesting about him is that he retired um about 10 years ago or so and it's actually unfortunate it's it's very sad uh i believe his wife died unexpectedly Hmm. um and he had his kids and he said well i'm not you know, I want to give my kids the full attention that they deserve, especially with their mom gone. And he retired. He said, I'm done. He walked away from acting. And uh, besides a few little appearances, I think he and Dave Thomas um, did a voiceover in a Disney movie and stuff. But uh, other than that, he pretty much disappeared for a while, Um, which is, I mean, you know, more power to him. I think that's totally awesome. But for us greedy uh, cinema goers, I've missed some Rick Moranis in my life. How about you, Sean? Uh, definitely. Like Rick, Rick Moranis was one of my, my favorites when I, when I was a kid, when I was growing up. If, there was a, if Rick Moranis was in a movie, that was a, a sign that it was a, a movie that we should watch. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, My Blue Heaven, Honey, I Blew Up the Kids. Yeah, these, yeah. these are all movies that I have seen. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but really... Uh, as far as Rick Moranis on on film goes, like the 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 greatest role, the definitive performance is, is Ghostbusters, and yep. we're doing our uh, our 1984 awards at the end of the year, and and he's in serious contention for the my best supporting actor award. He's ridiculous in Ghostbusters. I think he's actually the best part of the movie. Um, I. His his character, the little asides that he has, um, especially in the scene where he's throwing the uh, the party in his apartment. Yep. Uh, <laughs> are just, well, just all of it. He steals. He steals every scene. He steals them he from does. from Bill Murray and from yeah. Harold Ramis and from yeah. Dan Aykroyd. Like how? Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. yeah. He's he's absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> And just that, you know, him running through the streets, uh, being possessed by Zool, um, you know, with his like, you know, shirt all tattered and stuff, uh, drooling. Oh, great. It's just great stuff. Rick Moranis is a treasure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, in, in, in parenthood, it's a more serious role and, and he's pretty good in that. Uh, I, 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 I actually really like him as, uh, in LA story. Has, he plays the uh, the grave digger, grave digger in a little uh, Hamlet digression. That's right. Yeah, but uh, but Ghostbusters, Lewis yeah, Tully Ghostbusters. and Ghostbusters. It, it's it's Ghostbusters. I completely agree with you. Um, absolutely. Uh, well, a film that he's not in, and I don't know. Well, he might be. You know, <laughs> I, it's hard to tell. Uh, it, it's, the, the faces it's, are kind of hard to see. It's it's um, not. We have we have a cast list for the movie, and it is not. <laughs> you in never fact, know. <laughs> Rick Moranis <laughs> um, is wavelength. I mean, it's a little early for him. Nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah, he would uh, he would have been fourteen. So yeah. So you know. Um, but let's hear a clip from that real quick. Oh, there's no staff I guess there's no reason to have a cafeteria. She's a toy. We brought too many donuts. Eh? It is spooky. It's like a ghost town, isn't it? Yeah. Take off. Look out, eh? The lights don't work. Hey, check this out. There's sandwiches and smokes in these machines, eh? Here's an old Galactic Border Patrol game. Geez, you got Joe Louie and is that tuna or what? Plugs don't work. 
Hey, give me some quarters. We ain't gonna have chocolate milk. Forget it, Holzer. The power's turned off. Come on, guys. Let's go. Yeah, there's a door here. It's locked. Hey, Pam, you got a credit card? Hey, you got a credit card? Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, she's got a credit card. Okay, give it to me. I need it. He needs a credit card, eh? Hey, here. Okay, Colin, credit card. Jeez, travel, eh? Here you go. Diddy. Now, he once got our dead battery going by mixing birds, uh, feces, and uh, spit because there's, like, acid in it, eh? So, do you travel quite a bit? All right, so that was a clip from Wavelength, the 1967 film directed by Michael Snow that is is generally considered one of the uh, the greatest hits of, of avant-garde cinema or experimental cinema, uh, which is, in general, an area of film that I know almost nothing about. Uh, I've seen a couple others of the biggest hits, mostly in school, but but other than that... It's just not an area I've dived into much, and I feel really bad about that. What about you? You're a horrible person. Yeah, I, you know, I feel like, uh, yeah, I feel guilty every time people talking about it, start talking about avant-garde cinema, and I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I've seen Meshes of the Afternoon. <laughs> Meshes of the Afternoon is awesome. Uh, it is. You know, it's I, really great. Um. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat with you on that. You know, it's very difficult to make experimental film and to make it work. You know, um, there are reasons why conventional films, why obviously, why there are more of them. Obviously, because um, there are templates that can be followed and and used to you know to good purposes. And when you're not tethered to any of that. Sometimes it can be ponderous. It can be self-indulgent. Um, not to say that that's always the case um, at all. But, um, you know, so I've been put off by a lot of experimental cinema. I, I actually dipped my toes in some of that um, a few months ago. And, you know, it was, I can't remember the name of the guy, but it was, um, you know, a guy painting a room and then painting it a different color and then painting it a different color and it, you know <laughs> you know so it sometimes it's just there you know what i mean um i, I but, have i have the uh i have the stan brackage criterion set and uh it's like three disc blu-ray set of a whole bunch of his films and i've watched i've watched one disc of that and and really liked it it's just it's hard because because his films are really short you know for the most part uh mm-hmm. But, you know, watching them on a DVD or, or a Blu-ray, you're watching like one five-minute film after another and they kind of run right. together and you're not like giving it the attention that it really deserves. I think I think uh, a, a big part of uh, of the problem with it is is these films weren't designed to be watched digitally or on YouTube or on Blu-ray. They're designed to be watched watched on film and... And the actual nature of film of, of celluloid going through a projector is is part of the effect of, of how they work. So not being able because we don't have 
theaters anymore that really show experimental films. It, it's hard to kind of get the experience as it was originally intended by, by the filmmaker. Right. Uh, well, not not just the medium of the, of the of celluloid and film, but seeing it in a room like that too mm-hmm. um, is is a big part of it too. You know, when you're sitting on your couch um, watching Meshes of the Afternoon or something like that, eating you know an Oreo or something like that, it's you're you're a little bit removed from from the process. Yeah. But um, well, but let's get and, to and wavelength anyway, though. Yeah, uh, wavelength specifically is is a film about a room. And it's about 45 minutes long, and it consists basically of one very slow zoom from one end of the room to the other. And a few things that happen to kind of give a somewhat of a, of a structuring narrative to the film. Uh, but, but for the most part, it's just, it's just about that zoom and it's not, it's not a smooth zoom. It, it's very, it goes in, in fits and, and starts there. There are occasional edits, uh, at one point near the end, the, uh, the camera sets up in an actual different position. So it's not just one, you know, continuous zoom. Like you, you couldn't do a continuous zoom in 1967. You didn't have 45 minute reels, um, so whereas you you could do that now with digital it just it you know and maybe that's one of the the interesting things about the film is is uh is how it's not digital how it's it's just resolutely analog in in the way the camera moves and in the kind of images that it shows because it's not the same shot for 45 minutes it's constantly changing uh color it goes negative there's all kinds of different filters that he puts in front of it uh images come in and out of focus uh at one point we we uh we suddenly get to see what's in the shop windows across the street from the room that we're looking at and it's like this revelation of you know suddenly everything is crystal clear and then it goes away again and all, all of this is is accompanied by this this soundtrack that gets like increasingly you know loud and and droning this kind of like high pitched whine, and yeah, it's it's really scary. Uh, yeah, like I said, this is much scarier for me than Videodrome was. Um, I loved this movie. Uh, it's. Uh, there's so much that I liked about this <laughs> uh, and all of those elements that you just mentioned are, are part of it, you know, part and parcel, uh, the, the very analog construction of it, the, the slow cranking forward of, of the, of the camera, you know, as it, it kind of lurches forward instead of just slowly zooming um, that, that wine that you mentioned, that kind of tone um, it actually, reminded me of there's this <laughs> here here I go with the Melvins I haven't talked about the Melvins in a while so uh <laughs> there's this Melvin song called Mankey off of their album The Maggot which is an amazing record but um the song starts with a tone uh, kind of the, a, t- a test tone like that it's a little lower in register but um it it's kind of hypnotic and uh, you kind of get sucked into it and it plays for like two minutes, like literally two minutes of this tone kind of, you know, oscillating and going up and down a little bit. Um, and then there's just a just jarring edit of the song kicking in and being like a full band, like rocking out. 
um, and they, um, that kind of reminded me of that. And, and, and the intensity of that thing is the, the movie starts and I had the, the volume up at like, you know, normal level that I normally do. And it was, you know, sound was fine, but two thirds of the way through the 45 minutes of this thing, that pitch gets so loud that my dog ran out of the house and um like and i and i didn't want to turn it down because i wanted to experience what you know michael snow wanted us to experience i didn't want to like have the power to change that you know i didn't want to pause it or i didn't want to you know um adjust it for my comfort level um and it was terrifying it was just this shrill shrieking noise and um it just builds to this kind of i mean you're overwhelmed by the whole thing and and while that's happening on screen you're getting all the like you said the filters and the it's it's really jumpy where it keeps you know the focus comes in and out um all of those things just induce this kind of hysteria in you um and then there's the central mystery of what the hell are we zooming in on? Which um, I think we'll get to in a minute here. But um, so all of those elements together um, make this really fascinating. And it's something that you, I don't think you could do nowadays. I think it really lives in its time and place. Um, part of that is, and I find this really interesting about the film, is the film's from 1967. Um, and pointedly at the beginning of the film, uh, one of the characters, uh, there are people that are on screen very briefly in this film. Um, as you said, it kind of gives it a little bit of plot. Um, movie starts with two people, um, moving in like, a uh, some sort of furniture, you know, like a dresser drawer or something like that. And then walking out and then they're gone for a little bit. But anyway, there's a point where a character comes in and turns on a radio and, uh, it's pretty clear it's a radio because the song starts in the middle and, um, you know, if it was a record player, you'd kind of notice. But pointedly, the song is Strawberry Fields Forever um, from the Beatles. And it's coming out of this stereo, but it's kind of distorted. Um, and I think the choice of that song is really interesting. Um, and I think it's perfect for this movie. Um, you could argue that it's 1967. That was just the hit song of the year, um, you know, but, I mean, they could have done Penny Lane, which <laughs> would not have worked nearly as well as Strawberry Field. Um, and I think that song, I mean, obviously, that particular Beatles song is otherworldly, too. It's you know, John's voice sounds so inhuman at times in that song. Um, and then also the lyrics. And I mentioned this in my Letterboxd review. But I think that um, the living is easy with eyes closed, uh, misunderstanding all you see. Lyric in that song, I think that snow intentionally puts that in there and i think that he's commenting on what you're seeing and trying to make you uh you know observe the the mundane and and, and look at the stuff around you that you don't normally see um and i think it was a genius stroke um as well as I think that I think the title of this movie is hilarious when you when you find, when you get to the end of the film that title is so perfect. Like, I just, I love it to death. I think it's great. <laughs> well, here's, here's a little, uh, speaking of strawberry fields forever, here's a little, uh, a Wikipedia mystery for you. Uh, it says that, uh, the wavelength was shot in December of 1966 and then edited in 1967. And that's when it was first shown, but strawberry fields forever was recorded between November and December, 1966 and wasn't released in the U.S. until February of 1967. 
So my my I wonder if the uh, the sound of the record was recorded later during the editing process. Well, I think that's interesting. I think you know that it. Um, I think there was something in the song that he heard that that said that you know this. And this is me just ascribing whatever I want to this because clearly I don't know what Snow's intentions were. And it's hard to tell with a movie like this, but um, I feel like there's something in this song that speaks to him, or uh, it, or at least what the idea he's trying to get across in this in this movie. And for me, I think it's a perfect choice. I think I'm, I'm glad he waited six months or something to, to edit this. Well, thing. well, it makes sense because I mean, it would it would have to be it would have to be that song, right? Like he had to pick that song and he couldn't just, you know, go in at random. Like you, you wouldn't have the camera sitting out there and just listening to the radio and wait for them to play Strawberry Fields forever. And they say, okay, go in and turn on the radio. Uh, right, right, right. No, clearly. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. No, I mean, I've, I know it was done in post. I'm just saying yeah. uh, that the, what I, what I like about the, um, the way it plays in the, in the film is that it, it, it doesn't, in the film, it doesn't sound like like the world of the film. It's not like a deliberate choice because the characters are turning on what presumably is a radio. You know what I mean? Right, right. But Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's but the the sound isn't there, and then we hear like the the high pitched right. drone later on, and and you know that sound isn't there either, supposedly. Right. But it you know it makes you wonder how many how much of the sounds that we actually hear are there. Like you hear traffic going by, you hear you hear people talking, you hear you hear a big crash when the uh, when Hollis Frampton dies. You you know it's yeah, it's uh, it makes you makes you wonder how much if any of it is, is supposed to be real in, you know, scare quotes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think it's all heightened, you know, I don't want to say fever dream, but it's, you know, yeah. it's not reality. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, what, watching the film, it's, it's impossible, you know, almost 50 years after it's come out, not to, not to see how influential it was. Like, like basically, I think I think you could divide Stanley Kubrick's career into pre-wavelength and post-wavelength because every movie he made after it, I think, is influenced by this film. There's like the the I long can... zoom at the end of The Shining, the the high-pitched whines in in 2001, uh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally, absolutely. I can totally see that. Yeah, and Absolutely. like it, it's it's impossible to 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 imagine the second half of Stanley Kubrick's career without without this film. But uh, more than that, there's there's just the the whole uh, genre of what's uh, sometimes called slow cinema or contemplative cinema or uh, the a, a minimalist film where the camera is is very stationary and doesn't move very much and just kind of watches what's on screen and and the you know the time it takes to watch a scene becomes like a tangible you know effect of the film it becomes a, a part of the meaning of the film and part of the way that you experience it as opposed to a more traditional narrative cinema that just keeps keeps you moving along to get you like caught up in the emotional rush of the film uh wavelength it seems like like you know it, while it didn't start that, it seems like a like a ground zero event for that way of making film. Something like uh, uh, Chantal Ackerman's uh, John Dielman, uh, with just these really long static takes of of a mundane apartment, 
you know, it, I see, I see wavelength there. Uh, and I don't, well, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how much it, it was in turn influenced by films of this past. It seems, you know, like a, a there's kind of a variation on on blow up with like the the zoom into the photograph, but but it it really seems like something new. New, yeah, yeah. I can, yeah. It seems like, uh, you know. It, you know, there's no such thing as an original idea. Everything's you know coming after something else. But it really does seem like grounds, like you said, ground zero, or like a launching pad. And 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 it kind of there's a kernel of something here that w- did not exist before. And yeah. it and it and it infected a lot more um, people, the bigger names than than. Uh, than Michael Snow, for example, and and as as is usually the case, um, and I actually mentioning Blow Up, I I thought of Blow Up a lot while I was watching this, and I and I I think that would make a great companion piece to this, um, with those two films kind of their aesthetics and uh, also what happens in the films too. Um, yeah, because there's you know, uh, you know I mean, Blow Blow Up is the, is the is the the story of a murder that the guy didn't notice until he like stares at a photograph for a really long time and sees that there might be you know something there he hadn't seen before, whereas Wavelength is a film about a a, a murder that we see or a death that we see, but we're not interested because in, we're staring at this photograph that turns out to be <laughs> right. not related to it at all. <laughs> right, it's great. Yeah. Let me ask you about that photograph because so the film you know well that that was it, another of the 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 influences. Was the photo? What did the photograph make you think of? Well, as you know, as it's getting in there. So my question is: is what did you think the photo was before you knew what the photo was? Did you have? Did you I, think you saw, saw saw something before you saw what it really was? Uh, no. I mean, it it was, you know, it was kind of abstract shape kind of thing. It was it was clouds or waves or or something like that. I wasn't sure exactly what, but it was like some kind of undulating thing. And uh, I don't know if it if it was just me, but it did like a like a little magic eye thing where the waves actually appeared to be rippling. And I don't think they were. I think it was just like an optical illusion. I think no, I saw that too. And I think it has to do with as going back to the the film, like the celluloid and the way it was filmed. I think that okay. that that is just a trick of the eye that happens um, with that. It was, um, it was very neat. It was very cool. It's very, very cool. But, um, I, but I was expecting it to, to be somewhat related to the, you know, the ostensible murder mystery. Like we see a guy die and then we see, you know, later a woman comes in and calls the police. And so I'm, you know, expecting the photograph to give us some clue, but it, it doesn't at all as far as i know no it, it doesn't at all and and i think that's better i think it, yeah. it i think erring on the side of the oblique or or the mysterious is better for a film like this um i feel like if if it had tied everything i don't know i mean if you could really stick the landing with it um then maybe but it would be really difficult you would well, really well, have to yeah it like it it frustrates our, our desire to put a narrative on things like like we as as film viewers are, are trained to see movies as as story delivery devices so we see the elements of a story we see we see a character we see an action it, it progresses through time but it, it doesn't get resolved and it you know it just kind of leaves us floating so to speak mm-hmm. um 
Uh, but what what the what the image reminded me of was uh, was Solaris, which yeah. we, we talked about what a year ago. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah just the the, end- the the undulating waves of of the the planet that uh, the cosmic consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I didn't think about that while I was watching it, but I can see that connection there um, with Solaris. Um, so, so my, so my theory then, because I have to put a narrative on anything, is that the picture actually mm-hmm. is like this living planet, and it caused the murder. The picture's the killer. <laughs> okay, all right, whatever. I'd like to subscribe to your newsletter. It's, Thank you. It's very a much. movie uh, about a still photograph that comes to life uh-huh. and kills a guy. A filmmaker, so much, no less. That's so much more boring than what is really on screen. That is, that's too. That's. Um, I want to, you know. First of all, when I was seeing the picture uh, zooming in, um, before it, it's definitive what you're seeing, I, I first I thought I saw an airplane. I think I, I thought I saw like the the side view of an airplane. Um, I thought I saw caskets. I thought it was like rows of caskets, um, which made me think about you know war and Vietnam and all this other stuff. And and that's why I like the kind of abstract waves that we get at the end. Um, but what look at thinking about the, the, um, caskets and thinking about the, what I thought was, um, a plane or something like that and ending with the wave, um, they're all in some form or another, they're like escapes. And I, and I don't know if like my brain was like overwhelmed with the noise and was trying to like escape from the movie or something. Like I said, this is really scary. Um, the scariest part in this movie. Well, okay. I want to talk about two things. Um, what I love is that he doesn't really, he does a bunch of different effects in this movie, um, that he doesn't repeat like the, the, um, you, you mentioned the person that comes in and calls and reports the murder or mentions that they saw a murder or whatever. Um, and when he superimposes that scene again later over the, the, you know, shot that we've been following and it's like this ghost image of this person walking into the room, fucking scary, like terrifying. Uh, yeah. Stuff. That's actually, uh, 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 Amy Tobin, who was a, a film critic for a long time in, in New York and she worked at film comments and it's awesome. It's yeah. really great. Um, and then what he also does at one point is, you know, we're constantly zooming in. And as you said, it's not perfect, but there's a point where he um, then superimposes um, a previous, like, you know, maybe like five feet back from where we are now, a shot that we had before, mm-hmm. um, which shows you once, you know, you kind of get lulled in and you don't really notice the full progression of how far you're going. Um, but it's also scary because you're, you're afraid that you're never going to get to that photo. You know, he like, he, um, he's starting to pull back from the photo now and you and, and all, all you're clinging to in this world is that photo on the wall and you just really want to get to it. Um, so there, there are tricks and tips, the uh, things that he does here that, um, really heighten that, that feeling. And I, I think it's really, Awesome. Yeah, I think the I think the the color changes and the 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 filters he puts on it and the different uh, uh, lighting effects, different exposure levels, uh, the work to the the wall that we're heading towards is is just full of windows and it's all these you know rectangles. And by kind of abstracting the thing, making it look less like a room and more just like uh, colors and shapes, uh, 
uh, is is a really interesting thing. It's kind of teaching you to look differently at the spaces that you see on film and seeing them for their their like basic structural elements in in the matter of uh, of like modern modern art, basically like a, a Mondrian or something like that, um, which is which is pretty cool. I don't know. I, it's pretty cool. I, th- I think I think people get intimidated by by experimental film, by avant garde film, film, because they think like there's something out there that they have to get and that they don't really understand it, and and they either you know react uh, dumbfounded, like I don't get it, this or and or they react hostily, like this is you know this is pretentious. Uh, that's not uh, that's not how I look at those things, and it's not the reason why I don't watch uh, avant garde film. I just. Uh, I, I try and watch it just like like I watch anything else. Just try and and take in what what the the filmmaker is giving and interpret it through my own you know brain. Mm-hmm. If, if that makes sense. Uh, so did did you find this difficult to watch at all? No, not at all. Yeah, because uh, I, I, I didn't either. You know, to to put a pun on it, I was on this movie's wavelength from the get go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I you know I'm I'm more than willing to meet somebody halfway on something. You know, um, I am. I feel like I'm pretty skeptical of uh, pretension and malarkey and stuff, and um, and so you know, I, I I I hope I am. I don't know, um, but I you know, if you're genuine with yourself. Um, you can make the most out there kind of thing. And I will more than likely at least, you know, appreciate your F, you know what I mean? Like I may not like it necessarily. Um, but if you're honest, if you have, if the way you need to tell a story is by, you know, doing one static shot for three hours or whatever, Hey, I'm, I'm cool with that. So no, I had no, I had no problem getting on board with this. I, as, as I said, I, I really enjoyed it and I, I hope I get to see it someday, um, preferably in a in a in an environment that I think would be more conducive to appreciating its uh, strengths. So uh, this is the first uh, experimental film we've covered on the show, and we've covered we've covered a lot in the last year and a half. And I think we've covered you know pretty much everywhere. We haven't done Bollywood. Yeah, we should. And you know, I tried, but uh, but you're like, oh, it's too long. I got to work. Well, that's my impression of you, by the way. That's yeah, that's what yeah, you that sound like. That was, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Spot on. Way to go. I would love to do Bollywood, but uh, you know, you didn't tell the full story here. Mm. Uh, you're leaving town, uh, and we ha- we're gonna we're gonna bank an episode for while you're gone. And so I, I have a really short turnaround, and I don't have I don't have the time. You're correct to commit mm-hmm. to a three hour Bollywood film, um, but uh, after the break, we'll discuss what we are going to talk about on the next show. So here's Leonard Cohen again uh, with the Captain, one of my favorite Leonard Cohen songs uh, from a not as uh, well loved record. I guess is how you put it. The captain called me to his bed He fumbled for my hand Take these silver bars, he said I'm giving you command Command of what? There's no one here There's only you and me 
All the rest are dead or in retreat Or with the enemy Complain, complain, that's all you've done Ever since we lost If it's not the crucifixion Then it's the Holocaust May Christ have mercy on your soul For making such a joke Amid these hearts that burn like coal And the flesh that grows like smoke I know that you have suffered, lad But suffer this a while Whatever makes a soldier sad Will make a killer smile I'm leaving, Captain, I've got to go There's blood upon your hand But tell me, Captain, if you know Of a decent place to stand There is no decent place to stand In a massacre But if a woman take your hand Then go stand with her I left a wife in Tennessee and a baby in Saigon. I risked my life but not to hear some country western song. Ah, but if you cannot raise your love to a very high degree, then you're just the man. All right, so that is our show for this week. We're going to uh, uh, hurry up and watch some more movies so we can record another show next week before I leave for Vancouver, and then that show will come out sometime. When you're in Vancouver. Yeah, or or when I get back, depending on, on how the internet works over there. Uh, that show, we will be talking about uh, the, the late Lauren Bacall in How to Marry a Millionaire, and along with that, we're going to watch... Uh, uh, Renee Zellweger, who is still very much alive in uh, Down With Love. This will be our, our second Renee Zellweger film. Yeah, she, you know, no one's ever going to catch Keanu, though. Keanu will always be the star of the George Sanders show. Have um, we only done two <laughs> Keanu films? Yeah, but Ke- they, they stand tall, Sean. Point, yeah, point and, break. But, and, but he, he, was, he was also a person of the week. That's right. And Renee Renee Zellweger is never going to be a person of the week. (laughs) That's right. Well, speaking of people that will eventually be people of the week or or may already have been, I don't pay attention to what we've done in the past. Um, Believe it or not, we have a spreadsheet where we keep record of of all the topics that we do on this show and the music and all of that stuff. But damned if I ever remember when we're actually recording. So um, (laughs) that's how it goes. But anyway, we ended up with the same person uh, of the week twice. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you heard about the California State University in Northridge, Sean? I'm familiar with it. There was a, an earthquake near there. Well, like 20 I years just ago. found out they, uh, every Thursday, they have a, a rep theater there on campus. Um, and every Thursday they do rep films uh, free to the public. You can go not pay a dime and see a bunch of great movies on campus there. Um, they are currently in the middle of their Powell and Pressburger. I think it's a complete com- Powell and Pressburger. If not, it's very close to a complete retrospective of their work. Um, 
coming up in the next few weeks, um, like I said, it's every Thursday. They're going to be showing I Know Where I'm Going uh, on the October 2nd, uh, Matter of Life and Death on the 9th, and just on down the line. Red Shoes is coming up. Um, a whole bunch of great stuff. Tales of Hoffman. Uh, they're doing Peeping Tom. So uh, through the end of the year, uh, if you're anywhere near Northridge, California, or if, if Northridge is actually the name of a city, um, <laughs> I don't really know. But go there. It's free. How can you not go? It sounds awesome. Yeah, that's, that sounds great. Uh, are, you, are you familiar with, uh, with New York City? Uh, no, but I've been to Manhattan, Kansas once. Ah, interesting. Well, this is just like that. Uh, they, they there have a, a museum, a museum of the moving image called the Museum of the Moving Image. And right now they are in the middle of a complete retrospective of the films of Ho Xiaoxian, who is the greatest living filmmaker. Uh, today, in fact, uh, just ended a few hours ago, they, they showed uh, Millennium Mambo, which is my favorite of his films, so it's too late for you to go see that now. Uh, tomorrow afternoon, which will also be too late, uh, they're showing another of my favorites, uh, Good Men, Good Women. But the series continues through the middle of October, and there's a whole bunch of great stuff. Uh, Friday the 26th is Café Lumiere, uh, Sunday's Flight of the Red Balloon, um, his last film uh he's been working on a uh, uh an action film for several years now uh but of the remaining films if you had to see one you should go see uh city of sadness playing on october 12th on sunday it's the only one that i know of that isn't available on dvd with english subtitles at least not the last i checked so you definitely want to see that it's got a great Great early performance from from Tony Lung, uh, yeah. Go see that. And the like the 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 series will be traveling around the the rest of the country um, over the next year. I know is it's playing in Boston, is playing in Houston, is playing in Cleveland, is playing in Vancouver. It is not as of yet playing in Seattle. Which, yeah, come on, SIF Cinema. You have three theaters now. Give us yeah, our Hoshashian series. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, that sounds really exciting. Well, have a great trip, Sean. Um, I know I'll actually talk to you before you leave uh, for the next episode, but for all intents and purposes, hmm. you're gone at this point. Um, yeah, so I'm feeling this weird kind of video drome-esque temporal dislocation right now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I'm going to come out of your laptop and... Uh, you in the face or something dear god i'm gonna have uh, a nightmare so, about that now <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah you can find us online at the george sanders show.blogspot.com we're on twitter at geo sanders show uh, and you can email us at the george sanders show at gmail.com uh keeping with cohen we're just gonna go all the way through tonight uh this is a song called passing through off of his live album from 1973 uh it's a fun one uh so take care we'll see you next time i was with washington at valley Forge, shivering in the snow i said how come men here suffer like they do men will suffer men will fight even die for what is right Even though they know they're only passing through Passing through 
been through Sometimes happy, sometimes blue Glad that I ran into you Tell the people that you saw me passing through I was at Franklin Roosevelt's side On the night before he died He said one world must come out of World War II Not a fool Yankee, Russian, white or tan He said a man is still a man We're all on one road We're only passing through Passing through Passing through Sometimes happy, sometimes blue Glad that I ran into you Tell the people that you saw me Passing through Let's do it one more time Passing through